Guys, I feel very, very honored to be here. Thanks so much for being here and uh, very, very privileged to be in Houston. And I haven't spent a lot of time here over my lifetime. I was here um, for the first time in 1964 to watch the Astros play. That, that ages me just a little bit. But uh, uh, anyway, it, it just feels like a real joy. To, I mean, I just feel very honored to be here. So thank you very much. Uh, so I get to serve with an amazing team at, at Pastor Serve. And uh, we, we, we get to serve pastors around the country. What we do is that we coach a lot of pastors, we do a lot of consulting, and then we help pastors in crisis. Most of the time that crisis is oftentimes it's a conflict in the church that can't be resolved, it's a moral failure, those types of things. But as we've learned, uh, there's other types of crisis in the church. And what's happened in Houston is a crisis in the church. So Pastor Serve was launched, uh, not because I had a great idea, not because we planned this. It was launched like lots of ministries are, really, really out of brokenness. So I pastored in, um, so I pastored for years. I was in Chicago and then Boston and then South Carolina. And then God stirred in my heart to be a church planter. Why? Because all good people are church planters eventually, you know, because it's the right thing to do. So I went and my wife and I, uh, by God's grace, helped us to plant this church, and it was, it was God's grace that the church grew. And it's amazing when you're in a church that grows, people want to know how you did it. And a lot of times the church planners, most of the time, has no idea. And so we make things up, and we make up so many things that they ask you to start to speak at conferences and events to share how you did it, and usually you're just making more stuff up. It's only the Spirit of God. It's only the Holy Spirit. It's only God's grace, and yet we oftentimes like to say that it was a whole lot more. So I was in a church that by God's grace it grew, and so you're given more and more opportunities. So I was given opportunities to do things, and you're asked to be on boards and conferences and yada, yada, yada. Here's the big issue with me. I was a pastor that lived his life in fear. Huge amounts of fear. And the fear was, if you really knew me, you wouldn't like me. If you really knew me, you wouldn't like me. So I don't want you to really get to know me. As a matter of fact, I want to come a professional at sharing enough with you so that you're really impressed and you say, he's the most open, vulnerable guy that I've ever met. But yet there was still that gap in which you, you would not ever get in. So I learned how to share enough so that you're saying, wow, I mean... The dude is vulnerable, but yet there was still so much junk. Now, by God's grace, by only God's grace, there was no major train wreck. There was massive amounts of lust and envy and greed and all sorts of things in my life. And I believe that Satan has a very small toolbox, very small. And I believe the main tool he has in his toolbox is he whispers lies into our ears. And oftentimes we believe those lies. And the number one lie that Satan whispers into our ears is, don't tell anybody your secrets. Because if they really knew you, they wouldn't like you. And we all know that that's, that's an enormous lie. Because when we are open, when we are vulnerable, when we do share those things, God uses it for good. God uses it in amazing ways. But I got to a point in my life where I was really pretending that I was a lot better than I actually was. And that's exhausting. It's emotionally exhausting. It's physically exhausting. It's spiritually, it's exhausting in every way. I was exhausted. I knew enough to know that I had to get some help. So I reached out to some men and I said, you know, there's some things in my life that just don't feel right. I believe the gospel is true for essentially everybody except me. 
because I think it's still, you know, how fast is the church growing and are we planting other churches and how fast are we planting other churches and how much do we give away? And that was my, that, that was my dashboard. And so much of the way I felt about myself was based upon that dashboard. And so these men really began to speak the gospel to me. And it was uh, a time in my life of some real transformation. There were men that spoke to me like Jack Miller. I don't know if any of you know who Jack Miller uh, is. Jack went to be with the Lord about 15 years ago now. But Jack was a guy who used to say the same thing to me every time I saw him. He would say, hey, Jimmy, cheer up. You're worse than you think. But you're more deeply loved by Jesus than you will ever possibly comprehend. A lot of people think that that was Keller. That wasn't Keller because he was also discipled by Jack Miller. That was Jack Miller. And he would also say, what are you repenting of right now? Because we need to always have that spirit of repentance. What are you repenting of right now? And so God began to do some things in my life, some things that were very, very painful. I was arrogant. I was a theological bully. I believe that over here we have in this hand is that we hold on to things that we say, man, I will give my life for these things. I will give for my life by saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible is God's word. You know, we believe in the Trinity. We believe in the resurrection. We believe in the second coming. We believe in these things. Man, we will give our life for these things. Over here in this hand, there are a lot of important issues, but there are things on which a lot of people disagree you know, baptism and the use of the gifts and the role of women in the church and the style of music. We could go on and on and on. So we hold those things very, very loosely, very, very humbly, and we say that we will die for these things. Here was my problem. I had about four things from this hand and this hand. And, you know, that made me a terrible person to be around in a lot of ways. There was a lot of arrogance. I thought I could change your mind on topics. If I just had 15 minutes, I could probably change your mind. And God just graciously, uh, you know, begin to just pry these hands open and say, you know, this is in the wrong hand. This is in the wrong hand. This is in the wrong hand. Things 25 years ago I used to love to debate about. I have no desire anymore to debate or talk. I didn't want to even talk about them. I mean, I still have views on those things, but it's like there are so much bigger issues in the kingdom. And so God just began to do a work in my life. He began to change my life. And there was a radical transformation. So uh, it changed the way that I led. It changed the way that I preached. I just talked a lot more openly just about my brokenness. I talked about God's grace a lot more. So years ago, I was on the radio, um, which is no big deal. But there were pastors that heard things on the radio. And I began to get calls that were really interesting saying, you seem like a safe guy to talk to because I can tell something's changed. The way you preach is different. And so I think I want to meet with you. Could we meet and have a conversation? And I said, I don't think I have any great wisdom. I really don't. But if you want to meet and just process, I'd be very happy to do that. So we would meet and we would just talk and process. And so they begin to go to their friends and say, hey, if you want to talk to somebody, I think there's a guy that's pretty safe. I think he's pretty confidential. I think he's very much about the gospel. I think he's halfway competent. And I think he'd be a guy you could talk with. And so those conversations just began. And it was interesting because I heard the same thing in almost every conversation. And you know, this, to me, I think is very sad. And I hope it's not the case here, but, but I heard this in almost everything. It was this. I have a place where I'm supposed to go if I have issues in my life. I'm supposed to either go to my deacon board or my elder board or my presbytery or my bishop or my district superintendent or you know, whoever it is and say, 
hey, I'm really struggling with whatever it might be. I'm struggling in my marriage. I'm struggling with pornography. I'm struggling with this issue in life. I would never go there because one, I think I might get fired. I think if I told my boss, my, whoever that boss is, if I told my boss everything I'm struggling with, I think I might get fired. And two, if they didn't fire me, I'm not convinced that they're actually competent to help me with what I'm struggling with. So I'm not gonna go there. And I begin to hear that story so often that there was a point in 1999 in which God changed my call. And my call became to care for pastors. And God very clearly said, I want you to leave the church you've been at, and I want you to now pastor pastors, which I, I, I mean, I did not know exactly what that meant. I really didn't know. And they, you know that there's always the, who, you know, who made you pastor to pastors, which uh, for years, that was a struggle. Uh, I was much younger. Uh, now that's not a big, big issue because we've been at this for a long time. We have a long track record, but there was like, well, who, who, who in the world are you? And so Pastor Serve kind of bounced along for about uh, two years, and then God brought four phenomenal business leaders, phenomenal business leaders that said, we believe God wants this to be a lot more. And they backed it financially. They were the first board. We hired our first Hispanic in 03, our first African-American in 03, because at the very start, we said, this cannot be a white pastor's ministry. I have no desire to lead a white suburban pastor's ministry. And so we have a very, very diverse staff. Our staff is diverse, and we brought two of our staff members back there at the back. Roberto Moreno, raise your hand. And then Arthur Jackson is at the very back there. You'll meet them at the very end here. But God began to bring us some amazing team members, and God began to build our staff in a way that was just, it was extremely exciting. And so we were coaching pastors, and we were doing consulting with pastors, and we, we were doing crisis care, but it was always you know, the moral failure types of things. So we got a lot of calls from lots of churches that were in a you know, tough place. And then Katrina happened. And we got a phone call from a group and they said, hey, um, we've got a pile of money and it's specifically for pastors. And so we want to give this to you and we want you to care for pastors around New Orleans. We, we, we'd never done that. And so it was, okay, uh, let's, let's start to do it. So we began to make trips down and investigate and find pastors in need. So we looked for pastors that preached the gospel that we were passionate for uh, and had amazing needs. And there were you know, obviously lots of pastors all throughout, all throughout New Orleans. But in the Lower Ninth Ward, there were some incredible situations. And there was a group there of about 10 churches um, called The Cure, the Center for Urban uh, revival and evangelism, I think is what it was. But I mean, some good brothers, some good brothers that were there preaching the gospel and their churches were destroyed. And they said, here's the deal. You know what? Everybody is left in our church and uh, we aren't, there's, there's no offerings right now. So we really don't know what to do, but we can't stay here. We feel called here, but we can't stay here. So we said, okay, you know what? One of our main jobs will be to help you stay in the place where you feel called. And so we began to pour into them with some financial resources and some other ways to just do everything we could to help them stay in the place of their calling. We were able to do stuff with lots of other pastors around New Orleans. That was an exciting time. And it's exciting that nine out of 10 guys that we really poured into in a massive way are still in the Lower Ninth Ward. That's incredible. Because research says, which breaks my heart, research says 
that half of the pastors in Houston will be gone in three years. That's what research says. We worked after some huge storms and there was a massive tornado in, in years ago up in, uh, that was up in Moore. And in Moore, Oklahoma, you had one church that was a large church that was not hit, but it became the hub for like Samaritan's Purse and for FEMA and everything else. Large staff. In two years, everybody, everybody on the staff had left. Everybody. Why? Because you just can't do it after so long. Because you need to learn how to build in rhythms and you need to learn how to create certain things in your life that actually give you space just to think and to process and to pray and such. And so that's why we are here, because we've learned and we've served after tornadoes. We've we've served after fires. We were very, very involved, very involved actually in Haiti after the earthquake. And we've stayed very, very involved in Haiti. When I say very involved in Haiti, I just I was there with Arthur and it was my uh 51st trip to Haiti. So when I say very involved, we're, we're very, very involved in Haiti. Um, but we've seen things. And so, you know, it's one of those things. I don't think that we're the experts experts. But listen, we've walked through this a lot of times with, with a lot of cities. And we know that there are certain things that begin to take place with pastors. The thing that breaks my heart is I know that billions, billions will be spent in Houston. I know that almost none We'll go to you guys. And when I say guys, I'm from Kansas City. Guys means guys and gals, because I see that there's lots and lots of, uh, you know, there's lot, lots of, exactly. There's, lot, there's lots and lots of women in the room. So pl 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 please forgive me for that. Uh, but anyway, you know, that there, there, there is that, there is a need for you all to be helped as well. But we have learned pastors stand at the very back of the line. Why? Because most pastors are very selfless and they want to help other people and they have resources and they say, well, this person needs it a lot more than I do. This person has huge needs. And so we have watched pastors be selfless to stand at the back of the line just to grind it out and to say there are so many needs. My church has so many needs. I have to do so much that they stand back and that they don't get the help that they desperately, desperately need. And so what we do is we come and we hopefully have got some ways to serve you. It's not for your church. It's not for your overall community. It's for you. Everything we do, it has, it has a string attached. There's no gifts with pastor serve that are no strings attached. There's a string attached to everything. And, and the string is this. Don't you dare spend this on your church. Don't you dare spend this on anybody at your church that has needs. This is for you. This is a way to serve you. And so that's one thing that has become a real passion of ours. Let's do everything that we can to help pastors because pastors will not get the help that they desperately need. So we're oftentimes asked already, I mean, like in the past month, I've been asked a lot of times and you've, I mean, I will say this line over and over again. People say, hey, pastor service involved in Houston. What's your vision for Houston? And here's my answer. I don't have a vision for Houston. It's not my job to have a vision for Houston. It's your job to have a vision for Houston. And it's my job to support you. It's my job to love you and to empower you in every way that I can to do what you believe that God has called you to do. This isn't my city. It's not my job to have that vision. But I want to help you in any way that we can. 
We're here to serve. We're here to grow. We're here to do these types of things with you. So let me just share just some very practical things that we have watched and some things which we're actually trying uh, to do. So um, some, some of you were uh, with us just, just a few weeks ago. We had a date night. Uh, we, we just had a fun date night. So like if you were at the uh, date night, would you just, ra- 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 yeah, just raise your hand up if you were at a pastor's or date night. D- guys, was it fun? Yeah. Was it good? That wasn't very enthusiastic. It was, okay, was it fun? It was okay? Okay, it was a lot of fun. Listen, we have a date night again next Wednesday and next Thursday, okay? It's a night for you to come away with your spouse and just take some time and have some fun. And we just would love to bless you with a nice meal and just to bless you. Now, if you want to come next Wednesday night... All right, afterwards, give me either your card or like anything that like has your name and your email on it. All right, you can just give that to me. That's fine. If you want to come next Thursday night, Bryant Lee, right? So next Thursday night, talk to Bryant. If you want to come next Wednesday night, you can talk to me. We will do some things that to you might sound like, okay, I don't really have time for those types of things. For example, you will find on your table... We have two cards for Pastor's Fun Day. One day is to come and shoot guns. One day is to ride go-karts. Now listen, the gun day, uh, the date is wrong. Okay, it's Thursday, October 5th. It says on there Tuesday. It's Thursday, October 5th. So if you want to go on these things, it's just, it's, listen, there's no agenda here. There's no big, big presentation. It is just a chance for you to just be away and just to take some deep breaths and just to have some fun. And uh, these will be fun things. Don't come to both. You just actually choose one because these are limited. We want everybody to be able to, to come. So you know what? Just, just come and do it because it'll be a great way for you to just have a small break and just, just actually enjoy things. We, we know uh, that we need to do more and more things like this. So we are trying to find ways for you to have some days away. We're trying to find some ways for you to maybe possibly enjoy some sporting events. We're in talks right now with the Dynamo. We're in talks with the Texans, uh, just about ways for you guys to have more ways just to do some things, to just rest and relax because you need that. Here's one thing that becomes very, very tragic. We know from past experience that in about five months, divorce will skyrocket in Houston. Suicide will skyrocket in Houston. Why? Because there's that point in which you just can't take it anymore. There's that point in which you have that mindset of, okay, I'm just going to grind it out, but it's just for a season. But there's that point in which that season becomes too long. See, there are, in one sense, there's, there's about seven things in life you do. That's really it. You work, you sleep, you eat, you exercise, have time with your spouse, have time with your kids, and then you have some hobbies. That's really it. Guys, our capacity is limited. We have limited capacity. So when you begin to say, all right, I'm not going to work my normal, you know, maybe, I don't know, hours for you guys, it might be, I, I don't know, it might be in like an average week, week, like around 50, but now it might be up around 90 or 100. And so like if you start to stretch those hours, you know what? Things have to give. That's just the way it works. It's math, right? And so all of a sudden you sleep less and you stop exercising and you don't spend time with your kids anymore and you don't spend time with your spouse because it's all work and small amount of eating and I mean everything else drops off. 
There are seasons in life where that happens. I get that. But if that's a prolonged season, that is unsustainable. And for some reason, pastors kind of have this mindset of, you know what, I'm a Superman and I can keep going and I can sustain this. You can't. You cannot sustain that. And so we're trying to do everything we can to help you understand you have to build in some rhythms. You have to create some rhythms in your life. And those are going to have to be just like some fun days like this. It's going to have to be able to give yourself just the just that overall freedom to say, you know what, I want to go ride go-karts and have a nice lunch. Because that might be the healthiest thing in the world for you. I want to sleep a little bit extra. I want to take an extra long walk today. Those are types of things you've got to build in now. Because listen, you guys have just started. It's only been a month. There are areas around the Ninth Ward in New Orleans that have a fence around them that say to be demolished. And they're still there. There are still places being rebuilt there. It's been over 10 years. You guys are very early on. So if you think, well, this is this, you know, this will be over quickly. You know what? It's not going to be over quickly. There's going to be rebuilding here for years. And unless you learn to pace yourself now, you won't make it. So real success. So what is, what is real success in Houston? For me to come back here in two, two years and the same group is in the room. That'd be incredible that it's like, you know what? We, we stayed, you know, we had some hard times in our marriage. We had some hard times in our church, but I feel called here and we, we stayed. That's real success because there has to be this new mindset. And, and I do love the fact that you're, I mean, like you're right, Bruce, the fact that we feel closer now, we feel a lot more, just a lot more connected because you've been through a tragedy together and that bonds you together. It creates this new sense of we. I think that's one of the most important words for this city is we. I love Nehemiah chapter one, where you have this man who sees these walls down and he prays and says, oh, oh, Lord God of heaven and earth, you're here, hear the prayer that I'm praying. I confess the sins that we Israelites, including my father's house, we have committed against you. We have acted wickedly. We have not obeyed the laws that you gave your servant Moses. Now, listen, Nehemiah is confessing the sins that brought the walls down. How long had the walls been down when he prayed that prayer? Over 100 years. They'd been trying to rebuild the walls at that point for over 75 years. So why does he say we? We have lost an aspect of corporate, corporate Christianity. We've lost that in so much of a sense. We're like, man, we need to really confess you know, our sins. Absolutely. We need to corporately confess. God, I confess the sins of my family. God, I pray for my wife and for my, I pray for my children. Father, we are not following you. Father, I confess the sins of our family. Lord, I confess the sins of my church. Lord, I confess the sins of my city. God, we pray for our nation right now. Father, we, not, not, you know, those people in Washington, not these people. Father, we, we have acted wickedly. We're not following you. We are relying on our own wisdom. God, be gracious to us. We need to have that mindset of we, which means if there's an issue in Houston, it is not their problem, it's our problem. If there's a pastor who is struggling and he, you know, he's in Beaumont, but you're up north or whatever it might be, it's not, well, they have that big issue, it's we. There has to be this new sense in which you're not just pastoring a church, you're pastoring a city. And together, God has called you to corporately pastor this whole city together. 
It's interesting because I have been praying for you and I've been praying, help me, Lord, just to be clear on what you want me to share with these men. What do you want me to teach these men? And God, God spoke to me very, very clearly. I love the fact that Paul, so often as he writes to lots of his sons in the faith, he says, hey, you know what? Hey, teach, teach them to do this and teach them to do that and teach them in this way. Until you get to Titus. And in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, which I'll read you. He says this. Remind them to be submissive to the, 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 those who are there to rule in the place of authority, to be obedient, to do every good work, to speak evil of no one, to not quarrel, to be gentle, to be courteous, on and on and on. I love that he says, hey, listen, remind them. Which means they already know this. They need to be reminded. And there's times in which people teach us. There's times in which people remind us. I've got those pastors I listen to because I'm always encouraged. So like everybody else in the world, I love to be taught by Tim Keller. I feel I hear Tim and he teaches me. I, I love Brian Chapel as a preacher. Because I listen to Brian. Brian reminds me. He reminds me of God's goodness. There are those pastors that you hear him preach. It's like, man, I knew all of this, but they're reminding me in a beautiful way. So you know what? I'm, I'm not here to teach you anything. I'm here to just remind you of what you know. And the passage that God has laid on my heart over and over again, it would seem to be the most backward passage because it's like, man, that's, that's going to feel patronizing. Um, but I believe that this is the message that God has for me to share with you here today. So years and years ago, I, God called me to, to, to just to be a church planter, which was the most amazing thing. So, so I was in South Carolina, so you have to do all the things to move. And so you get bids on the move and things like that. And so we had a bid on the move and yes, we're going to do it. And so we have our day to move. And so we're absolutely thrilled. Actually, you know, you know that there's this window. And so we have this, you know, there's a big company. I don't want to mention their name, but there's a big boat on the side of their trucks. Anyway, so we, we had a bid on, our, on, on the move and they said, okay, we'll come on. We'll be there on either, you know, probably Thursday or Friday, but probably really, really, you know, first thing actually on Thursday. I'm like, great. So, you know, the house is all ready and everything's ready. And so I'm like, okay, Thursday morning, man, where, where's that truck? And uh, the truck does not come. And so I start to get calls around noon saying, hey, Mr. Dodd, you know what? The truck, it'll be there eventually. It's going to come. And uh, okay, great, because we've got to be out of here actually tomorrow night. So it's great you're going to be here today. And so it gets that date, you know, two and three and four and five. And after about five, I'm saying, hey, where's, where's the truck? They're like, hey, Mr. Dodd, the truck had some small problems. The truck will be there first thing tomorrow morning. I'm like, well, okay, that, that's our last day because we have to be out tomorrow night by midnight. Uh, so, I mean, make sure the truck's here. So that next day, once again, I start to call at eight o'clock in the morning. Is the truck coming? Yes. I call at 10. I call at noon. At two, the truck is not there. At four o'clock, I have the most bizarre phone call that you could ever imagine. This guy says, you know what, Mr. Dodd? I don't know how to tell you this, but I've been lying to you. We lost the truck. It's somewhere, somewhere, I mean, you know, somewhere in Georgia. Now, this is like pre-cell phone. So everybody's like, well, why couldn't they just call the driver? This is pre-cell phone days. Uh, and you know what, Mr. Dodd? We, we aren't coming. 
This is four o'clock on Friday, and I know that we have to be out. So, I mean, I just am in this full-fledged panic. I'm thinking, I do not know what to do. So I'm thinking, okay, we've got to get a big, big U-Haul. So I start to call every U-Haul and just trying to find this big truck. And I found like the last big truck, I think, like, I mean, like anywhere in the South. It was just a miracle. And so, so I'm smart enough to know that I'm not smart enough to pack a truck, right? So I'm thinking, okay, I need some, some, you know, some people that their job is that, that they pack trucks. So I start to call up a bunch of people and say, listen, I need some help to pack this truck. And so I've got these funds to move and now I'm not gonna spend it on this big line. So now I've got, you know, I have this money. So I'm offering large amounts of money to these people, please come, I can pay you well. They're like, it's Friday afternoon, it's been a long week, no. So I go through every, every group in the phone book, it's just I'm calling person after person, everybody says no, I come to my last option. It's a group in Spartanburg, South Carolina. And I said, listen, you're my last hope, I am absolutely desperate. Please, please come and help me pack this truck. It'll probably take two hours, please come and help me pack this truck. And they said, okay, we'll come. So I said to, actually my wife, I said, okay, call up the youth group, call up the church, call up the college kids, get everybody over here. We need to have everything out there in the front yard. And uh, so we had kids come out of the woodwork. We had girls in like the eighth grade moving our piano out of our house. It was, that's not much of an exaggeration. It was just unbelievable. So we have, you know, people move and I'll be real, real honest with you. I always have been angry with God. I'm like, God, what? What are you doing? Come on. We're trying to church plant. We're church planters. You should, be, you should be doing more for me. We shouldn't be in a situation like this. I should be cared for by you. This should be easy. This isn't easy. This is difficult. And I found myself growing more and more angry and a little bit bitter towards God. And then the guys show up from Spartanburg, South Carolina. And they pull up in a huge white truck. And on the side of their truck, in red letters, it says, and we know that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. On the side of the truck. And I just sat down in the front yard and thought, you've got to be kidding me. So these guys get out and I said, why? Why is it the name of your company on the side of the truck? Why is that? And they said, we just felt like that's what God wanted us to put on the side of our truck. Wow. Incredible. I had a good friend whose son went upstairs to his house, took his life. And so I rushed over to be with my dear friend and walked in and just spent the evening crying with him. And I wanted to say to him, God's going to use this for good. We have that promise in Romans 8, 28. I couldn't say it. It felt like it would be patronizing. It felt like it would be pedestrian. It felt like it would be glib. It felt like it would be insensitive. Because we've all been in a place where something terrible happened. And we said, if anybody walks in right now and says, hey, man, Romans 8, 28, I'll punch him in the face, right? It's like, dude, I, I do not want to hear that right now. I mean, I do not want to hear anybody say Romans 8, 28. The way that we read that verse is this. All things. We don't read that. It's all bad things. We never use that verse. Hey, I just got engaged. Romans 8, 28. <laughs> we, 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 it's, it's, we, we never use that in the context of good things ever, right? 
It's bad things. So we, we, we don't read all things. We read all bad things. Work together for good. As I understand good in my context of good. And in a place where I can see it. And I can grasp it. I think if there's one verse that we shy away from, I think that's the verse. It just feels wrong a lot of times. Because I think we really struggle with that verse. All things. Earthquakes, hurricanes, rape, incest, murder, sex trafficking. All, all things? Come on. Is that really possible? Either that verse is absolutely true, or else God is a liar and his word is not true. It's the providence of God. That verse is about the providence of God. The fact that God is in control. So we go to the church plant and God is kind. And as I said, the church plant grows, but we have some hard times in the church plant because every church plant, every church is going to go through some hard times. One hard day was when a young girl uh, that went to our church, she was killed in this awful wreck. It was just terrible. And her mom and dad had split up um, and they were in a, just a bad divorce and um, it was just a mess. Well, her dad had gone to this other church and her mom was still, uh, was still in my church. So the mom came and said, you know, Jimmy, this is just terrible, but I'd like for you to do, I mean, like everything, obviously, the funeral. And the dad jumps in and says, no, no, I don't want Jimmy to do the funeral. I want my pastor to speak at the funeral. So I'm like, well, uh, and so they begin to have this big, big fight right after their girl was killed. They were having this fight. My pastor's going to do the funeral. No, my pastor's going to do the funeral. And I said, you know, I'm sure we can find a way for us both to be actually involved in the funeral. So they said, okay, that's a good idea. So I tried to call, you know, call up, 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 up this other guy just because I thought we should just talk a little bit. And, you know, what do you say and what do I say and who's first, who's second, those types of things. I tried this guy for days. I could not reach him. So I walk in there, and I'm actually at the funeral, and I meet him for the very, very first time. He walks up and says, hey, I'm so-and-so. Okay, I'll go first, and then you, and then we'll both speak at the graveside, and that's it. I'm like, okay, <laughs> all right. So he goes first, and it is a packed church because this girl was very popular. She has lots of friends, so it's a large group. It's massive amounts of teenagers, and I mean sobbing teenagers. So this other pastor stands up, and he says, the first words out of his mouth were, were, were this. God lost control. This was not God's plan. God's plan was for actually Amanda to grow up, to have this full life, and uh, God lost control. And I mean, I am squeezing my wife's hand. I mean, like I'm in the front row, I'm squeezing my wife's hand so hard, and I'm, th I'm, just, I'm just thinking, I must have been absent the day they talked about this in seminary. <laughs> Because I don't remember this. I don't remember them talking about this situation. And he just goes on and just, it's one of the most tragic, depressing messages I've ever heard. And I'm thinking, I cannot believe I'm in this situation because I want to stand up immediately after him. And I know I'm going to say exactly the opposite. So he gets done. And so I stand up and the first words I say were, God did not lose control. God did not lose control. So I said, I'm, I said, I love certain sports at the Olympics. You know, it's kind of like, you don't really like this sport, but you love it at the Olympics. And I don't ever watch this sport, but I love, love it at the Olympics. And I enjoy, especially track and field. 
It's fun to watch it at the Olympics. And I said, it's amazing to me, this weird thing about the fact that you have someone who sprints and runs for 9.8 seconds, and if they win the race, there is this person, and they have a marathon, and they run for over two hours, but if they both win the race, they get the exact same medal. I said, I think that that's extremely unfair. I said, it, it just makes no sense. Because the guy that ran the short race should get a really tiny medal, <laughs> and the guy that ran a marathon should get like this massive medal. It would only be the right thing, right? It should be proportionate to what they do. And I said, you know what? Do you know why they get the exact same medal? Because they ran the race that was appointed for them to run. I said, Amanda is going to get an amazing crown of glory. She ran the race that God appointed her to run. It was a short race. It's heartbreaking. It was a short race. But she was not in a long race, and she stumbled in the middle of it, and she won't finish her race. She crossed the finish line. That was the race that God appointed for her to run. Because God is in control. God is sovereign. God is in charge of these things. The other pastor didn't even stay around for the graveside. He left. Because afterwards, so many kids came to talk to myself and my wife. Nobody spoke with him. Because, friends, it's one of the most beautiful doctrines of Scripture, the providence of God. God is in control, which means that everything that happens in this life is for our ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. Everything. So this flood in Houston, it is for your good. It is for your good. Now, listen, let's be very, very clear. God is not the author of sin. He's not the one that's going to say, but, you know, I, you know, I am behind all this. He is not one who says, hey, you know what? There's not going to be pain in this life. There, there is pain in this life. There's absolutely pain. In the, in, there are things in this life that feel like they will just crush your heart. Absolutely. It doesn't say that everything will turn out okay in this lifetime. It doesn't say, hey, by the time that you get to the end of your life, you're going to understand all of this, and it's all going to be clean and very, very pretty and all tied up. It says that ultimately, ultimately, this is for our good and ultimately for God's glory. There are those times in life where things happen that are tragic. And you can understand why they happened. So the Christians are slaughtered in China in 1949. And everybody who's actually alive is thrown out. They try to rid China of all of Christians. They do everything they can to say, okay, it's completely eradicated. Then 27 years later, it opens back up and we find out there's been one of the greatest revivals of history. And the word of God is spread throughout China and there are churches everywhere. And we can look at that and say, okay, this was tragedy, but we can see how God used it to spur on church planting and spur on the church all throughout China. 1955, five young missionaries, mostly from Wheaton College, go to Ecuador and they're slaughtered by the Alcas. Seems to be unbelievable tragedy. And yet God has used the story of Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and Pete Fleming. And he has used those stories to inspire tens of thousands to serve the Lord around the world. But there are many, many, many more stories in which we don't know why God did certain things. I've been asked so many times as a pastor in the midst of tragedy, why would God allow this? And my answer is often, I have no idea. But I do know this, 
that God is in control, that God is sovereign, and that because of the doctrine of the providence of God, which I believe, I know that God will use this ultimately for our good and ultimately for his glory. God will use what is happening right now in Houston for his glory. His name will be lifted higher. This might not be the script that we would have ever chosen. It's not the script that we would say, well, this is a great idea. This makes a lot of sense. Let's do this. It's not what we would choose. But God loves us. He cares for us and he has a plan and it's for your good. It's not and we hope. It's and we know all things, all things, all good things and all bad things will be used by God for our good and for his glory. But it's a conditional promise, right? It's not without condition. Love the Lord, called according to his purpose. We're called. We're called by God. It's not me trying to call my dog and my dog may or may not come. It's not you calling a friend and they may or may not answer. It's a for sure call. They call we are called by God. We are loved by God. That is a message that we need to just hear over and over again. We are loved by God. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of spirit of death. God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do. He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. In order that the just requirements of the law might be fulfilled in those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There's no condemnation. You know what that means? God isn't mad at you. God isn't mad at you. God is pursuing you. So I had a call from a pastor in North Carolina. He said, man, my life's a mess. Can, can, I, can I just process with you? And I said, of course. He said, can we block off a few hours? And I said, well, if, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, if that's what it takes. So we talked on the phone and uh, it was a painful story. He said, man, right now, the most painful thing in my life is my daughter. And uh, to tell you the truth, I don't know where she is right now. She's, she's gone. And uh, we've heard from friends that she's like, she's like, you know, somewhere like around Savannah, maybe. Um, and I've gone there multiple times and I've looked for her. And I mean, I've gone to some terrible places in Savannah, some, I mean, back, back alleys. And I'm trying to find my daughter and I'm hearing these stories of just really stupid things that she's doing. And it's just breaking my heart as a father. I love her so much, and I just, I can't find her. So, I mean, he's just weeping. I love her so much. And so I've just gone, and I've looked, and I've looked, and I've looked. And then he shares about his church, and he says, my church is in a huge mess. And shares about conflict in the church and his board and how they're struggling. It was a heartbreaking story. And then after we talked for about an hour and a half, he says, and then, and then there's me. And he begins to share stories about some things in his life and some, some things that he was involved with and some, um, some areas of his life that he felt like he had just completely just lost. He was just lost in. And uh, he said, you know, the thing that's really hard for me right now is because of all these things I'm doing and because of all the wrong in my life, I know God wants nothing to do with me. I know that God is just pushing me away and God wants nothing to do with me. And he said, so... What do you think about everything I've said? And I've said, well, if I could just actually wrap things up, I would say this. You're pretty much the father of the year and God pretty much sucks as a father. He said, excuse me? I said, 
I think you've made pretty clear that you think God sucks as a father and you're essentially, I mean, like, you're, 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 you know what, you're like the best dad ever. He said, dude, I don't know what you're talking about. I said about two hours ago, you told me about your daughter. And you told me how much you love her. Now all the stupid things that she's doing, it's just causing you to pursue her. You told me about going to Savannah. You told me the places you've been. And you were weeping as you said, I love her so much. I need to find her. I'm looking for her. Because you're a father. That's the way a father responds. But when it was you, your sin pushes God away. So that's how I resolved what I said. And it's quiet for about a minute, which is a long time on the phone. Long time on the phone. And then I hear, then I hear tears. I hear, I hear a man weeping. And he said, dude, I have never thought of that in my entire life. It's the gospel. God's pursuing us. God is pursuing us. He's not mad at us. He loves us. He cares for us. He will never leave us. God's proud of you. You say, dude, I really haven't done much. You know, I, I, I'm brand new to the city. I just joined as a church plant resident. I haven't done anything yet. God is proud of you. Jesus hadn't launched his ministry yet. He hadn't done anything in one sense in a public way. And God says, this is my son whom I love with him. I'm well pleased. This is my boy. I love him. I'm proud of him. Before Jesus does in one sense anything. Jesus ministered in incredible security because of the love of his father for him. We need to act in that same sense of security. There's a security of sonship when we realize, man, God cares for us. God loves us. He's proud of us. So there's a long way to go in Houston. What we have to do will not make God proud of you. God's proud of us right now. What we do is a response to his love. God is pursuing us. What we do is a response to his pursuing us. So brothers and sisters, we are here to serve you. We, we, we know we can't serve every pastor. We are very, very aware of that. But we've been praying that God would lead us to the right networks and the right connections and the right people. And we are so grateful for the fact that he allowed us to meet Richard and he allowed us to meet Chad and, and now Wesley, other people that, you know, the fact Bruce, and it's just been amazing the way that God has just begun to just weave things actually together. We're very, very grateful for that. So I don't believe that it's an accident that you're here. I believe that you're here because of the providence of God. I believe God called you here. 